Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Still he lashes 
Last week, we talked about why the Bible. Why do we trust the Bible? We talked about how it is that we got our Old Testament, why it is that we believe in the canonicity of the Old Testament, why we believe that it is God's Word. And I said to you, as I'm going to say repeatedly, as we look at the evidence that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, that means that it is its own best authority on itself. There is no book, there is no opinion, there is no seminary, there is no group of people or denomination, there is no pope, there is no religious organization that has authority over the Bible. The Bible has authority over all of the commentaries that have ever been written about the Bible, all the preaching about the Bible, everything every man has ever said about the Bible. The Bible is still the authority, which is why I keep saying that we have to bring our thinking in league with what the Bible actually says. Last week, as I said, we have looked at some of the history of the Old Testament, and then I told you that today we would look at some of the history of the New Testament and why it is that we also agree, and importantly, why it is that the nation of Israel once converted to Christianity, those Jews also believed that certain New Testament books were commensurate with the Old Testament so that they should be included in the canon. By the time I got done last week, I hope that I had convinced you that there is no question that Israel historically understood the books that we now have in our Old Testament to be scripture, to be, in fact, God-breathed, as Paul's going to say. But then there are these books that were written after Christ came and died and resurrected, and those books also are considered to be right from God. Why? Why do we consider those to also be canonical? Why do we agree that those are also the word of God? Do they have the same proof? Do they have the same evidence? Do they have the same imprimatur that you find in the Old Testament books? Because once we get into the proofs, the actual evidences that the Bible is the word of God, we're going to spend a good deal of time in the Old Testament and you're going to come away convinced that yes, there's stuff in the Old Testament that demonstrates internally without argument that this has to be the word of God. There's no other way to explain it. But then, why do we also say that the New Testament is also the word of God. Well, that's what we're here to look at this morning. We ended last week by reading 2 Timothy 3. I read 3.16 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5, because this is Paul's New Testament commentary on what we call the Old Testament. You may recall last week I said that we get the word scriptures from the Latin word scriptura, which is why when we say the five solas in Latin, we say sola scriptura. That means scripture alone. And we will get to those five doctrinal statements further on down the line in this study. But all scripture, Paul says, 
all the scripture that he had extant at that moment was what we refer to as the Old Testament. His commentary then on the Old Testament is that all scripture, the entirety of the Old Testament, is inspired by God. And I told you that is the word theonostos, which immediately Conrad rightly said is God breathed. The actual compound word is a combination of the word theos and the word pneuma, or a version of it, neo, which means to breathe out. So this word theonostos means that Paul believed that the whole of the Old Testament was inspired by God, breathed out by God, and therefore the prophets who wrote it down, because they were instructed to write it down, I think we proved that last week, because they were instructed to write it down, those prophets actually wrote what God intended for them to write, and he breathed out his own word. All scripture then is inspired by God and is profitable for all these very many different things. The Old Testament itself is profitable, number one, for teaching, which is why we've spent so much time going book by book through the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament, because we have found so much rich information that has informed us about the character and the nature of God, and it is valuable to us for teaching. How many of you have been keeping up with, let's say, the recent study we've been doing on Wednesday nights in the book of Proverbs. How many of you that have been keeping up with the Proverbs can honestly say that you learned something while going through the Proverbs? Yeah. There's plenty of very practical wisdom, practical advice in there. It's one of the reasons that Paul could say the Old Testament, the Scripture, is profitable for teaching. Because as we've read through the Old Testament, we've continued to learn things about God and about ourselves and about the relationship between us and God. And in the Old Testament, you also find, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, you find predictions of a Messiah to come and that his sacrifice is going to take away sin. That's all in the Old Testament, which is why the New Testament writers spend so much time citing from, repeating the Old Testament over and over because the whole of it, all of Scripture, is profitable for teaching, but it's also profitable for reproof, which means to come in league with the Scripture versus what you think because we all approach the Bible with a set of philosophical presuppositions is the big terminology for it. All that means is we all approach the Bible thinking that we sort of probably understand it. And then we see things in it that are diametrically different than what we expected. And so the Bible then reproves us. The next word is very much like that. Paul says, for correction. It corrects us not only in our knowledge and in our understanding of God and us and our relationship to him, but as you read the Old Testament, you understand what sin is. You recognize how heinous sin truly is. 
And you are corrected in your behavior and in your approach to life by the things that you can read in the scripture, in the Old Testament. Paul himself admits that. He says, I wouldn't have ever known that I was going through my life coveting had it not been for the fact that I saw in the law the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet. Then he recognized, oh my gosh, I do that all the time. Not that he ever used the phrase, oh my gosh. Paul recognized, I covet all the time, and I wouldn't have known how covetous I was had the Bible not said that. And that's true for all of us. You would never have known how genuinely depraved you were. You would never have understood the genuine wickedness of your human condition had you not read in the Bible that you are, in fact, depraved, and then it lays out all its evidences to your depravity. And every time you read it and say, yeah, that's me, that is just evidence yet again that you are depraved. But then the Bible also says, despite your depravity, there is a solution. There is an answer. There is a cure that you would not have known, you would not have understood, had the Bible not told you it. You would not have understood Christ and his vicarious sacrifice if all you did in this life was listen to babbling brooks and commune with trees and spend your time with Mother Nature and just think that that's going to give you the wisdom of this life. You actually have to look at the Bible to understand not only the depth of your depravity and the despair of your human condition, but also to understand the sacrifice of Christ, how complete that sacrifice is, how finished that sacrifice is, and that it is only through that sacrifice that you can approach God in the very first place. You would never have known that had the Bible not told you it. So the Bible is profitable for teaching, for correcting you, for reproving you, and for training in righteousness. Not only does the Bible say you are in fact depraved, you are in fact sinful, but the Bible also tells you, it gives you a guideline to follow to walk in the paths of righteousness, which you wouldn't have known because you didn't even know how depraved you were. In fact, you were so depraved that you were incapable of understanding how depraved you were until the Bible came along and told you how depraved you were and then showed you what the paths of righteousness look like. So, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, that is anybody who God has indeed drawn to himself and has inhabited by his Holy Spirit, That is the man of God, and so through the scripture, the man of God will be adequate, equipped for every good work. So Paul says, if you read your Bible, if you understand your Bible, if you spend your time in your Bible, the end result is going to be that you're going to know everything you need to know about you and God and your relationship to God. It's all in here. You wouldn't have known it. Had the Bible not told it to you, but if you pay attention to what the Bible is telling you, it is sufficient to tell you everything you need to know. Now, there's stuff in the Bible, references to stuff in the Bible, that were not told. I repeatedly point out that like in the the book of Revelation, the thunder speaks, and then John is told by an angel, don't write what the thunder said. 
We don't know then what the thunder said. Being the curious sort of person I am, I want to know what the thunder said. Why wouldn't God tell us what the thunder said? Because we don't need to know that. That's not for us to know. That's one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord. But there's revealed things that belong to his people, and he has told us everything we need to know to get us to our eternal destiny, to get us to the kingdom of God, to get us to our appointed place in the new Jerusalem. All of that is guaranteed to us through the things that we find in the Bible, but there are also things that we just don't know because we don't have to know it. But everything you have to know, everything that is necessary to get you to your pre-appointed destiny is right here in the Word. Yes. Understand that? Yes. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work, the good works that God has foreordained that you're going to walk in, you are indeed going to walk in good works. There's a fair amount of controversy in the church world these days. There is a version of Christianity out there in the world that says you get saved based on your good works. That would be called Catholicism. If you do enough good stuff, then God will save you on the basis of your good stuff. That's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does say those people who are saved by God, who are infilled by the Holy Spirit of God, those people will do good works. So the good works are a response to the fact that God has come into your life. They are not the cause that God came into your life. They are not the reason that God came into your life. When God came into your life and looked at you, he saw nothing but your depravity. He saw nothing but your filthy rags. He saw nothing but your egocentric, self-fleshly desires. That's all he could see of you. So there were no good works to save you on the basis of, if you don't mind that rather convoluted sentence. No, you had no good works. You had nothing you could bring to God. Isaiah says, even our best righteousness is filthy rags before God. Oh, by the way, that's in the Old Testament. See how the scripture is reproving us and teaching us? Instructing us in the ways of righteousness? The man of God then can be, can be made completely adequate by what's in this book, and he can be equipped for every good work. So then Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you this, preach the word. I tried to emphasize that at the end of last week, because it is the very word of God, the very breathed out word of God, that is the only hope that any individual has. I can stand up here and opinionate wildly to you, I can make up stuff, as many preachers do. I can tell you stuff to try to draw more people. I can build a large congregation if I'm willing to just tell you that you're wonderful and that God is just crazy about you and God is so in love with you and he was so lonely that he had to make you because without you, it just wouldn't be heaven. That message will draw masses of crowds, but it's not what the Bible says. So we are called to preach what the Bible says. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. 
week in, week out, no matter what, ready all the time, in season, out of season, no matter what the circumstances, always go back to preaching the word because it is the very God-breathed word of God that is going to educate people, that is going to draw people, that is going to instruct people in righteousness, that is going to tell people what sort of God they are dealing with. And oh, by the way, you're dealing with a really righteous, really holy, incredibly majestic God who is a judge. So then you need to know how to deal with that God. The Bible alone, the word alone can tell you that. You would not understand the grace of God if the Bible didn't tell you. Because your natural human instinct is, I've sinned. I've done something wrong. I've sinned against God. Well, then I better get busy fixing it. I better get busy cleaning myself up. And that kind of theology has been around since the days of Adam and Eve, who after they ate of the forbidden fruit, immediately sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover up their nakedness and started lying to God. So that kind of, I got to fix it. I got to clean myself up. I got to cover myself up. That theology has been around forever. But the solution to Adam and Eve was not them covering up. The solution to Adam and Eve was that God killed an animal and gave them skins to cover themselves. God himself covered them and their rebellion. And that is the correct theology that the Bible's been preaching ever since. Whether it was the day of atonement, the day of Kaparith, which means covering, or whether it's the teaching that Jesus himself, through his sacrifice, Through his death, burial, and resurrection, therefore covered all our sinfulness. It's the same theology from beginning to end, telling us what we need to know, telling us the sufficient information to get us all the way to our pre-appointed destiny through the grace of God. And therefore, since that's the way, that's the way that the relationship between horrible sinners like us and a righteous, holy God, like the only God who exists, the only only way those two can come to peace with each other is through the grace that can only be found in this word. Therefore, preach the word. Amen. You get it? Yes, sir. Preach the word. In season, out of season, always be ready. And then reprove, rebuke, exhort. How do you do that? By preaching the word. Because he already said the word of God, because it's God breathed, has the ability to do that. It has the ability to teach, to reprove, and to correct. So therefore, if you're preaching the word, you're going to reprove, you're going to rebuke, you're going to exhort, which is just another word for correction, instructing people, and do it with great patience and instruction, teaching that's why here at GCA, we just, we teach, we teach, we teach. Because, says Paul, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That phrase just means whole, healthy teaching. That's all the word doctrine means. Don't be afraid of the word doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. So there's going to come a time when people are not going to endure that kind of whole, healthy, biblical teaching. Instead, 
because they want their ears to be tickled, because they want to hear good things about themselves, because they want to hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, because they want to hear all that stuff that I said earlier about, oh, God just thinks you're a handful of aces. (laughs) People who want to hear that will go find a church that tells them that. And so they want their ears to be tickled so they will accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. I got to find me a church that will tell me how great I am because doggone it, I think a lot of me. And then it would be great if I could find a church that preaches a God that also thinks a lot of me. And then when I hear the preaching that God thinks a lot of me, I can go, well, good. Now we're both agreed. We both think a lot of me. Win-win. Win-win. Straight down the line. They want to find teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth. So what does that tell you? It tells you when they're looking For teachers and preachers who will tell them stuff according to their own desires, the stuff they're hearing isn't true because Paul says they've turned their ears away from the truth. Therefore, that preaching of you're just great, you're just wonderful, God loves you and just thinks you're fabulous and that you don't really need grace, you just need to work hard. Just impress God by being so darn good. That, Paul says, is a lie. Because it appeals to human ego. They want their ears tickled. They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they're going to turn away their ears from the truth. And they're going to turn the other way to myths. Paul just said that the majority of what passes for Christianity today... And I only say that because you turn on the TV, you turn on the radio, you dial up the internet, and you listen to a preacher, and usually he's telling people all that stuff I just said. Paul says that's a myth. That means that doesn't exist. That means that's something that's made up. But it's not the truth. The truth is you're depraved, you're wretched. When God found you, you had a hard, stony heart. And even though he has saved you and put his spirit in you, you know that occasionally you have thoughts that make you go, oh, I hope God didn't hear that. And yet he did. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how depraved you are. He knows how bad you are. And yet he chose you anyway. Yet he drew you to himself anyway. And that is grace, 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 yes. grace. And so the teaching of grace that can only be found in the scripture is not only the truth, it is the only truth because there is no other way that human beings can approach that righteous and holy God 
And there is no other way to convince you that you need to get down on your face in front of that God. If you've got a mythological God who thinks you're so wonderful, then at some point you and he are just cooperating in making you slightly better than you once were. And he accepts you on the basis of your slightly betterment. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. In other words, he just took the people who were actually trying to keep the law and establish their own self-righteousness. And he said, they're not good enough and you're not as good as them. And unless your righteousness exceeds them, you're not getting in. And there's no way that you can be good enough. Therefore, it has to be the grace of God forgiving your sin, overlooking your rebellion, and giving you the righteousness that you need. You get the righteousness of Christ imposed onto your account so that when God looks at you, he doesn't judge you on the basis of your depravity and sin. He judges you on the basis of the fact that you are in Christ, And therefore, your sin, your rebellion, your depravity is cast as far as the east is from the west. Another Old Testament phrase from King David. Your sins are cast behind his back into the sea of forgetfulness. And he accepts you as fully, utterly righteous based on a foreign righteousness. A righteousness that you didn't achieve. A righteousness that Christ himself achieved that is then imputed to your account. That's what the Bible says. That's the only truth. That's what we have to preach because that's what preaching the word means. Yes? That's right. Okay. Oh, but human beings won't sit for that. Human beings will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy... Be thoughtful, be sober in everything, and endure the hardship that's certain to come. Do the work of an evangelist. Do you know what the word evangelist means? The word gospel is the word euangelion. The person who preaches the gospel is the euangelistus. The euangelistus is the one who preaches the euangelion. In other words, if you transliterate those into English, the evangelist is the one who preaches the evangel. The evangel is the gospel. When he says, do the work of an evangelist, he's saying, preach the word. Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. There's a whole lot of aching, hurting, desperate people out there. Don't go to desperate, hurting, aching people and say, it's up to you. Because they got nothing. They can't help themselves. Look, if Leon could do better, he would. Leon is Leon right now doing the best Leon can do because that's the best he can do. And I just picked Leon because he had the misfortune of sitting right here on the second row. That'll teach him. But everybody in the room understands that you're doing the best you can. If you could do better, you'd do it. And the best you got is filthy rags. So therefore, you need to hear the really, really good news. Yes. 
And the really, really good news is you can't do it. Yes, you're going to walk in good works. Yes, you're going to walk in the ways of righteousness. But that's not what's going to save you. Christ himself is going to give you. He's going to take on himself all your sin, all your depravity. He's going to die because of the penalty of that sin. And he's going to give you his righteousness. And therefore, through all of eternity, you are going to wear the white robes of Christ's righteousness. That is really, really good news. That's why Paul says, do the work of an evangelist, which means tell the good news. Go read your Bible. Go understand what is in it. Understand the word of God. Understand the God-breathed word of God. And then go tell people that very, very good news. And by the way, if I say to you, you know, you're, you're pretty good. But if you can just do slightly better, then when you get to the gates of heaven, Peter will take all your good works and put them on one side of the scale. And he'll take all your bad works and put them on the other side of the scale. And then if the scale tips slightly in your favor, you get heaven forever. By the way, that's also Catholicism. And if I tell you that, is that really very good news? Because I'm telling you, if you get saved or lost, it's all dependent on you. And anybody who's honest with themselves realizes they got nothing. They can't do it. Well, then where's the good news? There's no good news in that. That's the really bad news of you got to do it. And if you just slightly miss the mark, well, that's it. Hell forever. Sorry. You had the opportunity to do better. You just didn't do it. That's not good news. Good news is, watch this. Christians are going to enjoy this good news. The good news is, you're depraved. Yes, and, and Christians all go, yep, yeah, 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 because that's part of the good news. The good news is you can't save yourself. You need a savior. You need someone to save you utterly and completely because you can't do it. And then the end of that really good news is he did it. He did it utterly and completely. He washed away your sin completely. And he has put on you the white robe of his own righteousness. And therefore, Paul could write in the book of Romans, he could say that who God determined beforehand, who he predestined, those are the people who he determined were going to be conformed to the image of his son and those same people are the people he called those are the same people he justified utterly justified took away their sin gave them righteousness and therefore Paul could say those are the people he glorified past tense already glorified that comes under the heading of good news good news to sinners if you're coming here wanting me to tickle your ears First off, that's weird. (laughs) If you're coming here hoping that I'm going to tell you how great you are, man, you've come to the wrong place. If you've chosen to come here because you want to hear how great and good our God is, then you've come to the right place. Because I got nothing for you but Christ and him alone. 
which takes us all the way back to Sola Christus, which we'll get to in the weeks to come. Though he slay me. Though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. By the way, book of Job, Old Testament, one of the earliest books. Theology is the same all the way through. So I told you we were going to talk about how we got the New Testament. Just as the Old Testament was given to us by the prophets of God, who were told to write things down, the New Testament rests on something that's called apostolic authority. It's very similar to what we saw last week in that we understood that the Old Testament was written by a succession of prophets And God spoke his word through the prophets and also told them to write it down. And then there was a 400-year period from the time of what we call the Old Testament, from the time of Malachi, until the time of Matthew. And through those 400 years, there was no more scripture writing because there was no more prophets. So the prophetic authority is why the Old Testament books were held as God's own word by the Jews and why they laid those books up with their holiest objects. Similar thing in the New Testament. Apostolic authority simply means that every book in the New Testament can be traced back to an apostle. Most of the books in the Old Testament were written by apostles, and Paul argues repeatedly that he also is an apostle, The couple of differences would be the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, but everybody agrees that the Gospel of Mark was written under Peter's tutelage, therefore it's also got apostolic authority, and Luke tells us right at the beginning as he's writing to Theophilus, he says that he went and talked to all of the apostles and everybody else in order to get all these events in their proper order. So he also was getting straight from the apostles, what the apostolic teaching was, and therefore the book of Luke also has apostolic authority. Do you understand that? The apostles, the last of them, was John. John outlived the others. He was on the Isle of Patmos sometime 92, 96 AD. That means by Roughly 100 A.D. or the early 100s, all of the apostles were gone. That's why all the writing that turns up after that was not considered canonical because it didn't have the apostolic authority. Now, Paul, as I just mentioned, argued continually that he also was an apostle and that he and the other apostles were ministers of the new covenant. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 3.6. Again, the Bible telling us how it was constructed and why we should believe the things that even Paul said, because he considered himself, along with the other apostles, to be the ministers of this new covenant. He says that he was inspired directly by the Spirit of God, That's 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 8. He also says that his ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling God and man. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 18. And then later in chapter 5, he refers to the message, the gospel of reconciliation. 
He is a minister of that gospel, that telling of reconciliation between God and men. And he says that he and the other apostles were entrusted with that word. So he counts himself as having apostolic authority. And then he goes about to prove it. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets with the other apostles, and they give him the right hand of fellowship. And they send him off to the Gentiles. So even the other apostles, based on Paul's experience and Paul's teaching and Paul's understanding, they all agree that God had chosen Paul to go out and be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul even declares in uh, 2 Corinthians 13.3, as he's writing the letter, he actually says, Christ is speaking through me. So he recognizes that the words he is writing came directly from Christ himself. And in fact, at one point, Paul takes the time to give an opinion. But he says, now this is me, not Christ. Now this is my opinion. Just so you know, this is me talking. So he separates the word that he got from Christ directly, the teaching of Christ directly that he got from the risen Lord versus his own opinions. So that apostolic authority becomes the valid test that assures that the statements of Christ actually came true. When he spoke to the twelve, he said, The Comforter, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send to you in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. That's John 14, 26. So Christ himself instructs the apostles and says to them, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit from the Father so that you can recall the things that I taught you. That's what genuine apostolic authority is. And I just want you to see that apostolic authority starts with Christ. Christ himself is the one who put it in place and said, I will give you specifically the spirit to remember all the stuff that I said to you. John fifteen twenty seven, Christ also said, you shall bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. That's apostolic authority. You were actually with me. Therefore, if somebody else comes along and says, hey, I've got some new teaching about Christ. Say Micah comes in here one day and says, hey, I've got something that's not really from the Bible, but I got it directly from Christ. The answer would be no, Micah. We're going to take you out into the parking lot now and begin the tar and feathering. Because Jesus himself said, the authority that the apostles have is from the fact that they were actually with him from the beginning. He taught them from the beginning. He gave them the Holy Spirit so that they would remember the teaching. And then they wrote down that teaching so that we could read it all these years later. John sixteen thirteen says, Jesus again speaking to them, how be it when he... The spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth and he will show you things to come. 
So Jesus himself said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. That's the reason that Christ trusted these apostles to write what we call the New Testament. New Testament authority is based on apostolic authority, which came from Jesus himself. And nobody since then has been able to claim that Jesus chose them to give some new revelation. Therefore, we trust that what these men wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write because it was the very spirit of God that was guiding them in all truth and in remembering all the things that Jesus had taught them. So then you've got these letters, these various books that are, that are written by various different apostles and then distributed among the church. And then began the process of copying. And this, if you'll excuse the understatement, is part of God's exquisite genius. God decided the way he was going to preserve the New Testament was different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament was preserved because he gave it to a particular group of people, and then he said, put it up with your most holy objects. And then, as we saw last week, they revered it as the very word of God, and they kept it and kept (coughs) copies of it and kept it because it was their word about their Messiah, given to them by their prophets. Therefore, that group of people preserved the Old Testament, but the New Testament wasn't like that. It's not a little group of people. It's everybody on the planet. And so God decided to have copies made. Now, when I say he made copies, I don't mean he invented the copy machine. Instead, people would go to churches, say you were coming from Ephesus, and you stopped in Thessalonica, and somebody said, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And they say, well, everybody at Ephesus would enjoy reading this. Do you mind if I copy it? And they copied it, and they copied it, and they copied it. And last week I gave you a couple figures about the copying, but there are thousands more, literally thousands more copies of New Testament Greek manuscripts than there is of any other ancient writing. They just kept copying and copying and copying. The internal consistency of the New Testament documents at this point is 99.5% pure. How do we know that? Because we can compare copy to copy to copy. And as I mentioned last week, we have copies that go back to within 40 to 70 years of the first time that that letter was written. It's pretty remarkable. That can't be said about any other ancient writing. Because it's really amazing accuracy. In addition to that, there are 19,000 copies in the Syriac language, in the Latin, in the Coptic, in the Aramaic language. And the total supporting New Testament manuscript base at this point is over 24,000 copies. Now, because of this process of copying, there are also mistakes. These are referred to as uh, textual variants. What it means is there's a variation in the text. The way those variations happened was because people didn't have computers back then. If you said, I want a copy of Paul's letter, you couldn't say, shoot it to me in email. 
couldn't say, text it to me. Instead, you had to sit down with papyrus and a quill and ink and copy it. So you're looking to your left, you're reading the letter, and on your right, you're rewriting the letter, and you're looking here, and you're right. The vast, vast majority of these textual variants that we find are things like that, missing letters, missing words, a letter that looks like it might be another letter. And the reason that we know the variation is because we can compare copy to copy. And so we know what the variations are. But in the counting of textual variations, let's say that uh, I wrote a letter to Micah. And let's say that Kellen was so taken with my literary abilities (laughs) that he decided to copy the letter by hand. What are the chances he's going to make a mistake? See, I have a computer. And my computer not only has Grammarly, which is software that tells me when I've made grammatical mistakes, but I also have spell check. And I write stuff, and I put it up on my blog, and a couple days later I'll be reading it, and there's a mistake in it. And that drives me crazy. And that's with all of this technology. Imagine people sitting down and just copying things by hand. So... Kellen copies the letter I wrote to Micah. Kellen shows it to Jeff, and Jeff says, oh, can I make a copy of that? Now, what's he going to do? Not only is he going to introduce new mistakes, but he's going to copy the mistake that Kellen made because he doesn't know that what Kellen did was a mistake. How many textual variants is that now? We're only talking about four people, and we're already increasing textual variants. The good news that you need to really understand about textual variants, though there are thousands and thousands of them, what you need to know is not a single one of them changes the theology of the New Testament at all. Because, like I said, they're just little misspellings, missed words, skip a line, all that kind of stuff, which because of the number of copies we have, you can go back and find the ones that don't have the variant in them. And so as copy and copy and copy was made down through the years, the older versions take precedent. As we look at the earliest versions, we say, okay, this is probably much, much closer to what the original text actually said. But as a result, you can have complete confidence when you open your Bible and you look at the New Testament letters, you can have complete confidence that you are reading exactly what the New Testament authors meant to convey, even though there may have been variants in the copies. In other words, you can have complete confidence in the Bible. Almost all biblical scholars agree that the New Testament documents were all written before the close of the first century. By the time you get to 100 AD, Everything you find in the New Testament was written. If Jesus was crucified somewhere 30 or 33 AD, then that means that the entire New Testament was completed within 70 years, a 70-year span. And that's really important because it means that there were a whole lot of people around who would have known whether what was written in the New Testament was true. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the fact that Christianity got its start in Jerusalem. 
And as the apostles were writing about, let's say, the death and burial of Christ, you know, there are a whole lot of people today who argue against Christianity and they make their argument on the basis of, well, Jesus never existed. If that's true, then why in Jerusalem, where those events are purported to have happened, why don't we find any ancient document anywhere where somebody argues against those events happening? We don't have it. We don't have it. We have nothing where somebody, Bob the Israelite, living in Jerusalem, we have no documents or letters from him where he says, you know, there's these people running around talking about this Jesus character, but he doesn't exist. Instead, everybody in Jerusalem knew he existed and knew that he was a miracle worker and knew that he died because it was a very public death. He was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and then hung on a cross on Golgotha, which is right outside the city walls. It was a very public death. They all knew about it. You've got the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem involved in this conspiracy with the Romans to kill this one guy. They all knew about that. Now, granted, there might be some people who would disagree with the whole raised from the dead thing, but you can no longer argue that Christ existed or that what was written in the New Testament remains uncontested in history. And it was written to people who would know whether or not those events happened. If I said to you, You know, yesterday, here in Smyrna, there was a circus, and the tent collapsed, and so many people were hurt. I couldn't sell that story to you. You know why? You live in Smyrna. You would know whether or not that occurred. You'd say, show me the proof. Where's the evidence? Where's the news story? Who are the eyewitnesses? That's why the apostles take the time to say, we're eyewitness to this stuff. <clears throat> you know, in a court of law, the best evidence that you can get, and George can argue with me on this if he wants to, because he is a lawyer and he likes to argue. And so, no, <laughs> the best evidence you can have in a court of law is eyewitness testimony. True? No argument. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because you can't do better than somebody who can say, I was there. I saw it. That's why all of the apostles say, I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. I knew it. Why? Three times in the book of Acts does Paul talk about his Damascus Road experience and his conversion. And Christ converting him personally and then taking him away into the desert of Arabia for three years. Why does he talk about all that stuff? Because he's saying, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. I saw it. I experienced this stuff. Okay, the New Testament apostolic writers were eyewitnesses who actually experienced this stuff, who wrote all this stuff to people who would know whether or not it was true. You get that? Well, that is a remarkable evidence of the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Because again, if you're going to argue 
that the apostles got together, and this is a very common argument, people try to argue this, that the apostles got together after Jesus died, they realized they had backed the wrong horse, and so they all got together and said, okay, here's our story. This is what we're going to say. We're going to say that he raised, and then they stole the body, and then they started preaching the resurrection message, just to kind of say face. Okay, well, if that is true, well, then they were liars from the start, Liars from the beginning, and yet the New Testament is so full of internal indications of the fact that these were honest men telling the honest truth about what they honestly went through, and there is not, get this again, I'm going to keep driving this home, there is not one ancient document, letter, anything we've ever found by somebody who said they lied. And you would think if they were provably liars... Somebody would have mentioned it. It would have come up. Instead, what they were were truth-tellers who completely flummoxed their enemies. Their enemies couldn't argue against them because they had experienced something so life-altering that they were willing to die for what they saw, what they knew, not just what they believed, but what they experienced and would testify to. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that we find no other ancient documents that are contemporary with the first century, or even any documents that are older than the Bible that have anywhere near the historic attestation that the New Testament has. Let me give you a couple of examples. The oldest fragment of a gospel that we have is known as the John Ryland's papyri, dates back to about 125 A.D. Okay, now I just got done saying to you that the last apostle would have died right around the early hundreds A.D., and we have a copy of John that goes back to 125 A.D. So we have pretty good indications of the fact that John and what he wrote is still what we find in our modern Bibles. That kind of closeness, that kind of proximity to the actual events doesn't exist anywhere else. And the number of copies doesn't exist anywhere else. Pliny the Younger, for instance, is a historian who was writing around 61 to 113 AD. So he is contemporary with the New Testament. The earliest copy we have of Pliny the Younger goes back to 850 A.D. The gap of time between when he wrote and the earliest version that we have, 750 years. Number of copies, seven. What did I just say? We have how many of the New Testament? How many thousands and thousands of the New Testament? And yet, when you go to school, especially if you're studying history, People will pull out Pliny the Younger and his writing, and no one will question the validity of what he wrote. Aristotle, we all know Aristotle. Do we all know Aristotle? Do we know him personally? Has anyone spoken to Aristotle lately? If you're studying philosophy, you've studied some Aristotle, and nobody questions that what we read in the writings of Aristotle is what he actually said, but 
Aristotle was writing from 384 to 322 BC. That's right around the time that we place Aristotle. The earliest copy that we have of Aristotle is 1100 AD. That is a gap of time between the writing and our earliest copy of 1400 years. We have 49 copies. Are you getting a feel for the genius of God in making sure that we had thousands of copies of the New Testament? And let me give you one more. Let's see who's a name that you would all know. Oh, Tacitus. You've heard me mention Tacitus, the Roman historian, over and over again. Tacitus even mentions Christians and Christ himself when he's explaining the burning of Rome. Tacitus is right around 100 AD, which makes him right around the time of the New Testament writing. Tacitus, the earliest copy we have is 1100 AD. That's a gap of 1,000 years. We have 20 copies. Compare that with what we have of the New Testament. All I'm trying to show you here is that you can have great confidence in the New Testament. And when you go to school, you are introduced to these philosophers and these historians where we have very few copies of what they wrote and there are thousands of years between them writing and the earliest copy that we have. And yet we have phenomenally good and accurate attestation of the New Testament and yet academia will tell you you can't trust it. Of all the books on planet Earth, that's the one you can trust the most in terms of historic accuracy. Just do the math. Just run the numbers. And nothing even touches the New Testament of the Bible. So as committed Bible-believing Christians, we approach the text of the New Testament with certain assumptions. We say that it is inerrant. We say that it is sufficient. We say that it is also inspired. And we say that it is completely trustworthy. And that the Bible is indeed Old and New Testament then. It is indeed the very word of God. Let's break a couple of those words down. When we say the Bible is inerrant, without error, someone will invariably say, but you just said that there were all these textual variants. And if there are all these copyist errors, then your New Testament is not without error. But what we're saying is the original autographs, the original letters written by the original writers was exactly what God meant to have written and therefore was without error. They never had to go back later with an eraser. They didn't have to remove any pages. They didn't have to say, I didn't mean to say that. Instead, they all tell the same story. They all follow the same theology. They all come to the same conclusions and everything that they wrote historically is accurate we know this from history therefore we say that the original autographs written by the original writers is without error it is exactly what God meant to convey including the fact that as I've already mentioned there are a couple of places in the New Testament where we're told you don't get to know this so therefore what we are told is exactly what God meant to tell us We've already read that the Bible is sufficient. Paul already made that argument. Paul argued that the scriptures, the Old Testament, 
was sufficient for our education, for our reproof, for our training in righteousness. Therefore, we agree that the New Testament is also sufficient. In other words, it contains everything God has chosen to reveal about himself, and we don't need more than what the Bible says in order to come to faith in Christ and in order to receive eternal salvation. Everything we need is in it. Here, let's see if I can give you an example. Several years ago, I had a couple of Mormon missionaries come to the door. And they were trying to sell me on the Book of Mormon. And I said, well, what does the Book of Mormon have that I need? Just narrow it down for me. What is it I need? Because I'm a Bible teacher, and the Bible says that if I believe what the Bible says, that that's going to be sufficient to get me to heaven. So what do you got for me that I don't already got? And his answer was, well, it's just more. I said, I don't need more. I believe the Bible is utterly sufficient. And then I explained to him that there was no more tribe of Joseph. And the young guy was listening to me more than he was listening to the old guy. And the old guy took him by the arm and they marched down my driveway and they haven't been back since. So... I win. We also believe that the New Testament was inspired. What we mean by that is what we've already looked at. Jesus himself said to his apostles, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit of God, which you heard promised from God. When he comes, he's going to remind you of everything, and he's going to lead you into all truth. Therefore, we do not believe that the New Testament apostolic writers were writing according to their own memory and their own thoughts and their own interpretation of what they heard. Instead, we believe that they were inspired by the Spirit of God, in order to write the very words that God wanted written. That's what we mean by inspiration. And we say that it's trustworthy. Currently, you've heard me say this enough times, but now you can walk out with it in your head confidently. Currently, there are in excess of 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts in existence. So through comparison, scholars are able to uncover any scribal errors, and they're able to reconstruct with great confidence the original text and tell us what the original writers actually wrote. Therefore, it is trustworthy. We ought to trust that the Bible we're reading is the Bible that God intended for us to have. It would be impossible Because of the number of copies, and you'll hear this occasionally, you will hear people say, well, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, came to more prominence and stuff, and so they they changed the Bible. They rewrote things, or they'll say that the various church councils, 325 AD, there was the first of these kind of church councils, and they'll say at that council, then they decided which books of the Bible were canonical, and during that time, they changed some stuff in the Bible, but if in fact there are the number of copies that you've already heard me mention, the thousands and thousands of copies in all these various languages, in order to change anything in the Bible, you would have to be able to collect all those copies, so that you could make the same change in all those copies. That's part of the genius of God. By having all those copies floating around, nobody could change it. If somebody attempted to change it, 
his lie would be exposed by all the other copies. So God preserved his word through the use of these copies. And that's why we can be assured that we have what was originally written by the apostles themselves. So when you sit down and you read your Bible, recognize that that is the very people who walked and talked with God, who were eyewitnesses to these events, who took the time to write to you to tell you the stuff they think you need to know. Inspired by God himself to write it. Okay, so those are all fine descriptions. Those are all fine definitions. But I also told you that we're going to look at evidence. Where's the evidence outside of the Bible saying that the Bible is true? Okay, I'm convinced, Jim. I'm convinced that what we have is what God actually meant to have written. But I I need evidence. I'm the kind of guy who wants to stand on things that have rigor. Leon built this platform up here. There, I'm picking on Leon again. The first time I walked in and I saw it, the first thing I thought was when I stand on it and we put furniture on it like a piano, is it going to fall down? I want things with rigor. I like things with structure. I want things I can trust, things I can rest my ever-living, never-dying soul on. And so I'm the kind of skeptic at heart who doesn't fall for just, well, the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. That's circular argumentation. How do you know the Bible's true? Well, because it says so. Why do you believe it when it says it? Because it's the Word of God. How do you know it's the Word of God? Because it says so. That's circular argumentation. I wanted evidence. I wanted proof. I wanted something that I could take in front of anybody and say to them, look at this. This proves itself axiomatically. This has to be the word of God. Otherwise, this can't happen. That's what I wanted. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm about to tell you next week. here questions about what you heard this morning no all right good thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace sunday morning message we invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates books Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.